This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. I'm particularly gratified to have as my guest today from Jakarta, one of Southeast Asia's most distinguished diplomats, Dr. Marty Nataligawa. Dr. Nataligawa served as Foreign Minister of Indonesia from 2009 to 2014. He has also, among many other things, been Indonesia's permanent representative to the United Nations, ambassador to the United Kingdom, Indonesia's Director General for ASEAN Cooperation. He has served on high-level UN panels and among many other affiliations, he is also currently a Distinguished Fellow of the Asia Society Policy Institute. He also in 2018 wrote a book which in fact is right behind me in my bookshelf titled Does ASEAN Matter? A View from Within. Dr. Antaligawa, thank you so much for joining me on Asian Insider. Welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Panema. I'm, I'm really uh, grateful and pleased to, to join you. Thank you. Thank you. So let me start perhaps with the title of that book of yours, which asked the question, Does ASEAN Matter? And that was published in 2018. Now, does ASEAN matter in fact more now in 2023 than it did back then? Well, I did purposefully present the book title in a form of a question rather than a statement, because I wanted to be sure that it's not self-celebratory in nature, but rather a bit more questioning whether it has mattered. And, 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 and I think the conclusion I reached reach then is that indeed ASEAN has mattered in the past, at least in the three dimensions, in changing the dynamic in the relationship between Southeast Asian countries, promoting the notion of an ASEAN community, a notion of strategic trust between countries that had in the past been marked by tensions and animosity. And, and it also has mattered uh, in the sense of changing ASEAN's place, Southeast Asia countries' place within the wider geopolitical push and pull, uh, becoming uh, central uh, to the region's uh, affairs. And not least of all, uh, mattered because ASEAN has really delivered uh, in terms of uh, the uh, promoting the welfare of its population. But I was keen even then when I wrote the book in 2018 to ensure, to make the point that these gains need to be constantly earned and that we can't be complacent. And I must say that from the vantage point of the 2023, I think that type of reminder uh, that we can, more of the same may not be good enough is actually more important than ever before because I do feel if we use the three facets as I had identified just now, uh, that there is a risk that ASEAN is becoming uh, less relevant uh, than it had been in the past, uh, whether it be when we refer it to the notion of a geopolitical uh, push and pull, uh, the, in the intensifying geopolitical competition in our region, you know, apart from constant appeal just now by ASEAN to the major powers, so-called major powers to exercise restraint or to, to say that we don't wish to, to be made to choose. There really hasn't been any demonstration of ASEAN's uh, leadership or centrality beyond a convening power and in terms of affecting the region's uh, dynamics uh, on intra-Southeast Asian uh, affairs or relations. Uh, at the moment, I think uh, ASEAN is at the, one of the most uh, vulnerable uh, point in its recent history when we are seeing developments in Myanmar, not only in the developments in Myanmar itself, 
which is already extremely serious, but the manner by which ASEAN member states have responded to it, reflecting a sense of uh, division, a sense of drift, policy drift. And the last point about ASEAN vis-a-vis uh, more people-centered ASEAN, for, for want of a better term, questions are being asked even by our own populations, to what extent ASEAN actually matters to their own uh, affairs. So I think 2023 compared to 2018 is a, a bit more, there is a greater uh, vulnerability mm. and fragility in, in, in describing ASEAN's relevance there. Mm. What does the U.S. and the West, but the U.S. in particular, considering it is really U.S.-China competition that worries the region sometimes, what does the U.S. need to understand about ASEAN in terms of how ASEAN manages any, or intends to manage and possibly even could thrive amid intensifying big power competition? What does the U.S. need to understand about us? Well, for, first of all, in relation to your original question, mm. You know, I mean, we are seeing a little bit of a differentiation in recent years about how third parties or third countries look at our region or at ASEAN. Initially, uh, originally, you know, one tend to equate Southeast Asia with ASEAN. It's the the two, uh, one and the same. But increasingly, I think many countries uh, outside of Southeast Asia approach the region and differentiate between ASEAN as a collective entity and endeavor and Southeast Asia uh, uh, as a whole, uh, there is clearly a recognition that Southeast Asia is important, etc. But that does not uh, does not automatically translate into recognition of ASEAN's importance. Increasingly, we are seeing uh, the development or renewal of so-called minilaterals or development of uh, minilaterals that tend to circumvent uh, ASEAN. Uh, I think this is uh, to continue the, your original question that uh, if ASEAN uh, adopts a rather complacent attitude, then the risk of uh, being sidelined is a a very real one. But to to your question, I think it's extremely important for uh, a country like the United States to recognize that the diversity or variation in foreign policy outlook within ASEAN is is not a design fault, but it's actually uh, a feature of ASEAN. It's It's a fact of life. And, and and not to try to force a uniformity of foreign policy orientation and inclination to our region. But the thing is, in the past, notwithstanding the different foreign policy orientations that each ASEAN member countries have, we have been able to de- develop a common external outlook and orientation in general. I mean, the, the basic uh, outline in terms of ASEAN centrality, ASEAN playing a positive role in, in promoting the peace and security and stability of the region. I guess uh, it's important, perhaps for from the vantage point of whether it be D.C., Washington, D.C., or Beijing, or elsewhere, uh, to recognize that uh, you know, ASEAN cherish and values its is, uh, autonomy and, and wants to maintain that uh, independent capacity for 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 decision making i think it's very important to to be able to recognize that is a feature of asean that we value very much okay really interesting there are some over here since i'm sitting in dc who criticize the us approach in the region or more broadly the indo pacific as tending to be more military than economic us alliances are being deepened 
We have the very significant AUKUS pact, which will eventually give Australia nuclear-powered submarines. Do you share that view? And what are your views on the U.S.'s wider Indo-Pacific strategy, including AUKUS in general? Well, I, I do actually, I, I do share that view. But to be honest, it's not only an inclination that is uniquely U- U.S., to be honest, because increasingly nowadays we are seeing a general tendency of headwinds against diplomacy, headwinds against uh, dialogue, uh, inclination for countries to communicate their intent, their resolve through military means, uh, deployment of military assets. Uh, diplomacy as statecraft uh, is fraying at the moment. Uh, you know, whenever we have conflict situation, whether it be Russia, Ukraine, whether it be uh, the internal situation in Myanmar or the tra- cross-strait issues, those who speak on behalf of uh, dialogue and negotiations and, and uh, engagement of that type tend to be often case uh, attacked uh, and accused of being uh, like pursuing an appeasement policy or justifying certain uh, uh, unacceptable actions. So I think it's a, it's a general global trend. But certainly in the United States, in recent, we have seen a trend where it tends to accentuate the more security and military uh, assets and outlook that they can deploy. Although I think even that assertion is not 100% correct because you can see, you are seeing, for instance, the current administration pursuing efforts at promoting democratic partnership, for instance, or, or working on issues such agenda such as climate change and infrastructure development, etc. And of course, those things are ongoing and important, but one can't help uh, the impression uh, as if there is a weaponization of some of these uh, public goods uh, domain, uh, domain that ought to be uh, the very definition of, I mean, of uh, the need for cooperative partnership. Instead, almost practically any domain, technology, cyber, semiconductor space, public health, climate, they have become or promotion and partnership of democratic principles becomes increasingly yet another ground for geopolitical push and pull. And I think it would be great if the United States can recognize in their case, uh, less can in fact be more in the sense of uh, allowing a sense of uh, regional ownership uh, of some of these efforts uh, so that they become more sustainable and not be uh, prone uh, or vulnerable to... uh, the changes in that may occur domestically in DC or in Beijing or elsewhere. Yeah. You mentioned Myanmar a couple of times. Now, this issue of Myanmar, of course, dogs ASEAN, so to speak. We know it is hugely complicated. It has a long history. It spawns cross-border problems, refugees, including the Rohingya refugees, both people, illicit economies and so forth. And the question of engagement with the military regime is a sensitive one. We have recently had Thailand's outgoing foreign minister, Don Pramudbinai, meeting with jailed opposition figure Daung San Suu Kyi. What is your view on the Myanmar issue and ASEAN's reading and response to it as a group and as individual countries? Well, as you have quite rightly said, it is a complex issue. And as well, it is an issue that actually has historically have long preoccupied ASEAN. It is not a new issue for ASEAN to address. We've had long uh, years and even decades of engagement and engagement on, on the matter. But I do feel, you know, 
post 2015, there was uh, a sense of uh, perhaps, uh, for want of a better term, complacency within ASEAN in assuming that the democratic uh, transition in Myanmar has become sustained and irreversible when it, it was not obviously quite the case yet. In the past, I can only speak of the past, there was a great, much, uh, a great deal of hand-holding, a great deal of mutual encouragement, pressure even to Myanmar to uh, press on with this democratic uh, democratization uh, process. But perhaps 2015 onwards, uh, matters such as this, democratic partnership and promotion and protection becomes less and less of concern in many of the ASEAN capitals who are a bit more transactional in their foreign policy outlook and less issues of this type. And therefore, we have seen the backtracking that we have seen and the, the coup that had transpired. But now we are back to, not only back to square one, but actually worse than that. And because of this sense of complacency that I had uh, described before. Uh, now, I think for ASEAN, as, as it's in many issues of this type, we need to be essentially synergize uh, the dynamics that is uh, national level. In other words, the, the Myanmar uh, level, uh, country level dynamic synergize it with the regional uh, dynamic, meaning the Southeast Asia inter-ASEAN dynamic, and the global one, uh, meaning at the at the uh, multilateral global level. Uh, but I am I'm sorry to 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 feel this to say so. But at the moment, I feel uh, not only is the original Myanmar issue itself is sufficiently complex, clearly, but the at the regional level, uh, things have not been made easier by the lack of unity by ASEAN member states. You know, I mean, even prior to the latest development, mm -hmm. we have seen a fraying of ASEAN's common response to the development. And this has become even, as we proceed, even wider. You know, I mean, ASEAN, Southeast Asia have been quite skilled in employing both formal and informal diplomacy, open and quiet diplomacy to obtain certain outcome, whether it be, for instance, in the 80s, the Cambodian conflict, the Jakarta informal meeting that preceded the formal pa Paris uh, conference, mm -hmm. or the uh, South China Sea, you know, initially a track one and a half and then become mainstream into the governmental process, uh, the Thai-Cambodia border issues uh, uh, on Southern Philippines, on Aceh, etc. It's a combination, a very adept and very uh, calibrated combination of formal and informal. At the moment, I feel ASEAN's approach has become quite predictable and too unidimensional. And I feel that, yes, it's important, and I agree full, uh, wholeheartedly with the exclusion, for instance, of the junta from ASEAN summits and ASEAN foreign ministers' meeting. Mm -hmm. But it, that in itself is not sufficient. There has to be... Uh, a parallel track where the issue of Myanmar can be discussed uh, openly and, and with all the parties concerned uh, at the moment. There is really isn't uh, such a process and the effort that uh, Thailand made, probably because it, well, it lacked prior full consultation with the rest of ASEAN member states or whatever, for whatever reason, you know, instead of becoming a process that complements ASEAN's formal efforts, it actually becomes an issue that distracts and divides ASEAN. It doesn't have to be this way. And this is, I think, 
Indonesia as chair of ASEAN uh, must exercise its leadership because uh, it's you know we have to promote certain outcome and vision, but at the same time we need to maintain ASEAN unity. Uh, at the moment, what I'm seeing is that each ASEAN member states can speak extremely eloquently on their national position, uh, but the ASEAN home uh, is actually crumbling uh, because no one is really. Uh, doing the bridge building uh, work. So it's simply everyone going all out with their national position. And as a result, we are where we are. I think it's a bit unfortunate. Yeah. Mm, sobering. What are your hopes in terms of best outcomes from ASEAN this year with Indonesia holding the chairmanship? And are things moving in the direction of a good outcome? What are your hopes? Well, I mean, Indonesia's chairmanship of ASEAN, well, there is chairmanship and there is uh, leadership. Chairmanship is something that's procedural rotation based on uh, the application of alphabetical uh, principle and it's Indonesia's turn to chair ASEAN. But uh, in in decades past, in years past, whenever Indonesia chairs ASEAN, uh, we've also been keen to ensure that it's not only the fulfillment of of, uh, procedural uh, responsibility, convening meetings, and, and, and et cetera, but actually uh, project an exercise of leadership that has impact far beyond the ac- actual chairmanship year. Uh, if you look at the, for instance, the most recent 2003, when ASEAN embarked on its ASEAN community project that was during initiated during Indonesia's chairmanship of ASEAN 2003, how to elevate ASEAN from an association to a community uh, and likewise, in 2011, when we refined and expanded further the East Asia Summit, initiated the RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Mm-hmm. These are dynamic changing, systemic changes that Indonesia introduced that whose impact extend far beyond the chairmanship year. And we can still feel it, feel the relevance even today. Now, I'm not sure uh, to what extent Going by the, the seventh month that we have had now of Indonesia's chairmanship, I have not seen just yet that type of systemic impact, potential impact that Indonesia has introduced. A lot of the gains so far or work so far are those that are already in the pipeline. Uh, in other words, that come what may, it's almost like an automatic pilot. Commitments, projects, and objectives that are already in the pipeline that we simply need to shepherd and deliver in our chairmanship year. So the, the more routine type, uh, whereas the one that we don't actually necessarily plan for, such as developments in Myanmar, the South China Sea, Code of Conduct, etc. These are the unknown unknowns uh, developments that are out there. Even those are not uh, necessarily uh, gaining traction and substantive progress. So uh, unless something profoundly significant occurs in the remaining part of the year, going by the test of beyond the chairmanship relevance, uh, I'm struggling to find uh, what is the basic change here that Indonesia is promoting. Just today or yesterday, I, I came across news item to say that ASEAN and China had agreed something initially on the South China Sea. And I thought, oh, is this it? Is this the code of conduct? No, it's actually, in a very typical ASEAN way, guidelines uh, on the acceleration of the negotiation on the code of conduct. So 
this is the time, uh, you know, things are happening at a, such a, a fast pace. And yet the way the modalities, the way ASEAN is working is almost like, I, I don't want, I, I may be too harsh in describing it, but it's almost like a business as usual. This is the time when I think ASEAN leaders, ASEAN ministers must get a grasp on, on issues and define the, the challenges that are before us and, and come up with solutions. But so far, I'm a little bit underwhelmed, to be honest, yeah. No, excellent point. I think the, the world, geopolitics in the world at large moves much faster now. Pakmati, Natalie Gawa, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you again for joining me on Asian Insider. Thank you very much. Thank you. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode, usually on the fourth Friday of every month. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.